Wow. What an exciting interview. Like you guys are in for it. This guy's like, they're all great. All our guests are great, but Dick Wybrow. Oh my goodness. Like I guarantee if you have narcolepsy, you will not fall asleep during this show. You're narcolepsy ever, narcolepsy is when you get mad at people who fall asleep. Narcolepsy is when you kind of tend to fall asleep. No, I anyway, thought it's you don't fall asleep. You're always you know, narcolepsy, tired. But you narcolepsy is when you tend to fall asleep. Well, he didn't tend to fall asleep. I thought he just always was tired. He never went into a deep REM state. Well, you guys who are listening to us argue should watch the episode and find out exactly what the guest said. He's written some great books, Kane, which is a really unusual take on full moon animal transformation, and then Hell Incorporated, which is an eight book series, I believe, that he did before that. And uh, oh, my goodness, this guy not only is a nice guy, but he's super intelligent and he was fun to hang out with and talk and um you know, we didn't get into a lot of deep politics or, you know, any sort of universe shattering revelations about um, the way the human condition is. But we had a really fun time, as you can tell by uh, Greg's excitement. <laughs> My excitement's palpable, palpable. Um, we got into a bit of, you know, him talking about it, how in the Kiwi Nation, you know, that things are pretty cool and there's that neighborly element of you know well we're all in it together and that they still have their challenges with the indigenous molly is that the tribes people mackie the, i don't the mackie i'm just guys. gonna say i don't remember and we'll have to watch the episode again to get the name uh anyway the Mau- maori is my understanding of how maori. it's pronounced but i go. might be wrong yeah. I've been wrong a lot lately. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. No, yeah, you haven't. It just goes with the... <laughs> You've been wrong a bunch. <laughs> and with that, whatever you do, don't push subscribe. Don't, you know, share it with your friends. We want to keep this podcast a secret. And don't drink adrenochrome soda. Available yeah. on our website, mopedoutlaws.com. Two outlaws on the lamb taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Moped Outlaws. Today we are super excited to have successful author, former comedian, and all-around wise guy, Dick Wybrow as our guest. And we are going to bring it. Dick, are you ready? I'm ready. And uh, you may have mentioned it. I'm fading in and out because <laughs> <laughs> it's early here, but I'm coming to you from New Zealand. Oh, New yes, Zealand. he's coming to us from the future. I am in the future. Um, the thing is about being in the future is I'm not allowed to tell you what happened, so I am sworn secrecy. Uh, but I, I will say, watch the sky. That's all I can. It's really all I can say about it. Other than that, all right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I was looking into uh, the work that you've done and just doing research so I could ask really inane and, um, you know, worthless questions. But um, sure. one of the things that you're really like bringing to the f- fruition right now is the Kane series. And yep. I noticed that you have the what appears to be the final chapter, Kane Unhinged, debuts next month in December. Is that correct? Well, it's the, uh, initially it was going to be sort of a, a three-book series. Uh, I've had a lot of input from readers. Uh, in fact, it's funny how much what because writing is such a solitary experience, right? It's me just in my home office, which is my garage. That's a thing here in New Zealand, by the way. They carpet their garages. I don't think anybody puts their cars in garages. So I'm in a two-car garage that's carpeted. It's got a TV over there, a couple lounges over here. So I sit in this room and I create these strange little stories, but then readers start having their input. And um, like on this third book, for example, I was talking to a reader group up in the UK and uh, this lovely group of people. And this this nice one was like, I can't wait until we can hear a little bit more about Kane's past and how he grew up. And I was just starting on book three. And as she's saying this, yeah, of course, that's exactly what I'm doing in book three. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so suddenly, but she had a great point, you know, it was a great idea. And, and that comment actually led to a big thread through the entire book. And so where it was initially just going to be three, there's been so much good feedback from readers and some ideas and thoughts and things that they want to find out about. It looks like it might be five. My previous um, series that I have, I've got the last book in that series coming up this next year. Um, That's going to be nine. I'm ready to be done with that. Um, I don't plan on going for like a long arc of nine, but I think five feels about right. I've got some plans for it. So, yeah, no, it's been it's been a thrill the entire way. That other series is Hell Inc., correct? Hell Inc., right, exactly. Exactly. Are you the kind of author who you know your beginning, you know your ending, but the middle is discovered as you're writing? Yeah, discovery writer. Uh, or some people Some people don't like the term pantser, but I feel that's appropriate. You're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Right. Yeah, there's some authors, like the real smart ones, like the Isaac Asimovs of the world, that would sit down at 8 o'clock in the morning. He'd write literally, literally till like 5 p.m., get up, and his work day is done. And he had, as far as I understood it, had every chapter planned out in character arts and beats and all that. Mine's more of a manic pants on fire sort of, as you say, I've got a bit of an idea about how it's going to end. Um, I've got maybe some ideas of beats through the story, but I always feel that once you've got uh, a good couple of characters put together and their relationship, they start to sort of dictate how the story's going to go. And I do know how flaky that sounds, trust me. But you start to, after a while, you just start sort of dictating what those characters in your head are saying to you, and they take you along on that path. So I have plans, <laughs> and then the characters sort of shred them up a bit, and at some point it turns into a story that people seem to like. Well, I think the positive of that way of creating is uh, the art of surprise, like where you yeah. yourself as the creator surprised. Whoa. And I've heard Quentin Tarantino, who I love dearly as a writer of words, um, say he's had characters where like he's like, oh, this character's doing this. I never expected that. Yeah. 
And it sounds really odd. There was a scene, you mentioned the Helling series. There's a scene where the two main char- characters were sneaking in. And this always comes to mind when I think about the characters taking over. The two characters sneaking into this big facility, right? And they're kind of going underneath in sort of this sewer-ish sort of area. And forgive me, it sounds really nuts. But there were these Roombas, these big evil Roombas <laughs> that were moving in and out. And, and so they were sort of ditching these. And so at one point, uh, I had both characters on top of these Roombas riding them underneath through this uh, this area where they couldn't touch the floor. And the characters themselves decided that they wanted to race. And it was nothing I planned and it was nothing I put together. But suddenly one character trying to pull in front of the other one. You know, at any moment, either of them could be killed by, you know, the bad guys and all that. But here they are in this scenario and they're trying to beat each other to the end. And that's all that matters to them. And it was just such a, as you say, it was just such a joy to sit and just observe that happening sort of on the page and in my head as it played out. And in that way, a lot of times I'm absolutely, it is a surprise for me. I'm the first reader of this stuff because a lot of this is just coming down the pike to me. Yeah. It's kind of like jazz music. You have a framework, but then the real juice is in the improvisation. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it's just having a sort of, I don't know what it is, either confidence or or just being dumb enough to let them sort of take over your head um, and and you just go with it. You, you know, that's that's kind of the cool part of any sort of creativity like jazz. Like you mentioned, you just you trust in the creativity. And I remember years ago when back in my radio days, I was interviewing Tom Petty and he was talking about he called them gifts. And he said these gifts that just kind of come down to you. And I don't know if he was being spiritual about it. But what he was saying is just you really trust in that creativity and you try to mature to a place where you allow that to take you places because there's a great desire to kind of put a bit of a yoke on it, put a governor on it. Right. But the more you, the more you can just say, like, I don't know, let's let's see where this goes. And sometimes later on, you have to edit that out or you have to trim it in some ways. But in the moment, just let it happen, because it's one of the greatest feelings in the world. Yeah, like taking that scene you just described, I think our logic in academia would say in a life of peril, running away from bad guys, you're not suddenly racing with your friend. But as purveyors of story, we love that. Of course, you know, like, yeah. (laughs) Right. And maybe it's compartmentalizing on their part. If I want to try to overanalyze them, maybe with all this horror happening around them, they're thinking, he's ahead of me. I know that's not okay. (laughs) There's a survival mechanism in that. There's a survival mechanism in that. And when we can just tap into the joy that we're experiencing, regardless of the peril we're in, there's magic in it. There's a kind of of winning attitude that goes with that, I think. Yeah. A hundred percent. And even with uh, the news story with Kane, you know, there are great moments between because he's such I've never written a character like him before. I don't know if there's been a ton of characters like him because in the story, he used to be a wolf (laughs) just a year ago in the story's uh, time frame. And this infected man ends up biting him. And the next day he wakes up a human. Um, and over a year, he grows to full-grown adult. And so uh, just sort of seeing him and seeing the world through his eyes and trying to put my head in, what would a newly birthed human, full size, how would they see the world? And and a lot of those chapters, I've, I've told those chapters in first person, seeing this through his eyes, a lot of that, it's not me constructing it. It's not me, he should say this, he should say this. It is really just this sort of flow that kind of comes down and how he observes things. 
And that's kind of a fun way to do it in a way, because for me, I guess, even just as a person more than an author, it's just sort of looking at the world with fresh eyes and taking the small joys out of things that we kind of take for granted every day. And that's kind of been really neat. And that's kind of opened my eyes to a lot of little happy moments around me, which has been kind of a, a surprise. That's very cool. So the youthful innocence yeah. is embodied in this adult body, literally. Not even, not even just the innocence, you know, it's also the, <clears throat> the things, it's, it's, a, it's a clarity of vision because by the time we reach an age, like right now I'm 54, I've got all these sort of biases. I've got all these assumptions that I make about things around me in the world, it'd be it people or, or moments, and he doesn't have any of that. And so he'll come into a situation and he's <laughs> he doesn't lie. I mean, wolves, uh, he carries a lot of his wolf past with him. There is no lying in the wolf world. That's not a concept. So he'll meet new people and he'll just tell them, I am wolf. <laughs> and so in his partner's like, ixnay, ixnay, let's just kind of keep that on the down low, can we? And it's just not in his nature. And it, it does seem to pull people toward him. So, yeah, that's been really fun. That's awesome. Um what gave you the idea to take the werewolf story and turn it upside down? I, I guess the inspiration for this in large part was um, because I've been in the news world. Um, I worked for CNN for about 10 years. I've been doing news, a news comedy show uh, in New Zealand for about 10 years. Um, and there's an adage in news that says dog bites man is not a story. Man bites dog. That's the story. And basically the idea behind that is like something unusual has to happen to make it news. But then I started because I was writing this other book about the news world. And when I was writing that, that adage kept up coming up again and again. And I started to just, again, you know, one of those things where those thoughts that kind of stick in your head, kind of like um, – like a jingle or something where it just won't go away. And it kind of hung around my subconscious and it started to grow and grow and grow. It's like, well, what if that was the story? What if man bites dog became a story and then man bites wolf turned into that. And then it turned into this idea of like, Oh shoot, that could be a reverse of werewolf. And yeah. so that's, that's what that, it was the genesis of it. I never sat down to write a monster book. I don't even other than Frankenstein, the, the original, uh, which is phenomenal, by the way, um, I don't know if I've read a lot of monster books. So it's not a monster book in that sense. I've never been somebody that went to the theater saying, oh, great, a new uh, werewolf movie, a new vampire movie, a new zombie movie. I do like some of the zombie stuff. But so, so I didn't really I didn't really set out to write what is in simple definitions a monster book. It's, it's mm -hmm. really about somebody sort of who's in a world he doesn't quite understand and gets a bit of help from this part-time criminal. And they, they're sort of both working out the world together. You know, she herself is in a world where she's lost and he's in a world where he's lost. And it's the two of them from, you couldn't be any more different than these two come together and they kind of start working stuff out. Hmm. You know, That's in a lot of these, these stories, there's a kind of human allegory about the hidden parts of our id, the sort of monsters of our interior. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you with these characters, if there's any intentionality around that. Um, I think there's a bit of that. I think we all want to feel as though we've got that something special inside of us, right? Um, and when it comes to things like, you know, you mentioned id, <clears throat> um, I remember I had an old talent coach back in my radio days, uh, Tommy Kramer, uh, who I dearly love. 
Um, and he said he was sort of the first person to kind of because I've always been a bit of a light. I'm Canadian. Right. So I'm a nice guy just by nature. We, we have to be. It's the law. <laughs> and and so he goes and I couldn't believe he picked this out. He goes, you have what's known as an, an ignore zap personality. And I was like, what? He goes, you ignore, ignore, ignore. And then you zap. <laughs> and I had never seen that myself. And basically, that's what it is, is I just sort of like I roll along. Moments happen. People say stuff. Somebody might be crappy to me, something like that. And then suddenly I'm in traffic and somebody pulls in front of me without putting their turn signal on. And I'm like, I will end you. <laughs> and, and and it sort of bursts out of you. I guess the irony to some extent with with Kane is you would think, that a character that was a former animal, you know, a predator, apex predator, that he would ha- he'd be on a hair trigger all the time. And he's actually surrounded by a lot of people that are kind of out of control. And he's the most sort of serene all the way through the book hmm. until, you know, the moon comes out and things go haywire. And he becomes a wear pug. He, yeah, you know, what was funny about that. So this is part of the fun part of the creativity, right? So when... When I had uh, the delivery person knocking on my skull, the the Amazon idea person knocking on my my skull, and so I started to create this idea of this reverse werewolf. He used to be a wolf, now he's a human, and I started sort of thinking about how do I? I don't want to make it to where he's just interesting when the moon comes out, and then so the moon comes out. Now he's kind of more of this interesting character. I I, I wondered about this, and I would love. I, sincerely, if there's anybody who's seen this before, I'd love to hear it. I started to think of why do werewolves only come out when it's a full moon? Why just a full moon? Why why not a half moon? Why not a quarter moon? And so I started to think, okay, let's say my character, my guy, who is in human form, transforms into a wolf wear, a werewolf, basically, when the moon comes out. What would happen if, if it were a quarter moon or a half moon? And I started to think, well, maybe he'd be a lesser werewolf. And then, of course, a lesser werewolf is a dog. And so it turned into this where depending on the moon phase, you know, a sliver of a moon, he becomes a little tiny lap dog. If it's a quarter moon, he's, as you say, a pug. If it's a three quarter moon, he might be a Rottweiler. So he sort of gets larger and larger in, in size, depending on the phase of the moon. Uh, yeah. So that's been, that's been, I don't know where that came from and, and everything's been done before. So maybe somebody else thought of that. But when I kind of came across that, I giggled myself silly about it. And I put that in the book. I love I've it. never heard of anything close to this story. Like it just yeah. is really unique. So, so yeah. what's the pathos? What, what's the challenge that these two characters, what is it they're trying to solve that has them end up being buddies? If you could tell us. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I don't have any problem with that. So, so plot line wise, <clears throat> so maybe I, I'd call it a device, but it wasn't even created this way. So one of the things when Kane Kane is brought up by for a year, uh, basically he grows from about a teenage boy until 25 year old or so hmm. in about a year, he's brought up by this um, couple in uh, British Columbia. Um, the, the dad, human dad is French. And then the mother is, uh, is from Winnipeg, like my mother. And, uh, and as he's growing up, he's learning these things. Um, they teach him. He learns French first. That's why he has a French Canadian accent. Uh, so yeah, so he's a six foot seven human werewolf with a French Canadian accent. And but one of the things that doesn't quite click in his head because it made sense to me this idea of mechanical things. And so, so Kane can't drive. He just he can't work out the mechanics of driving. There's no there's no 
parallel in the wolf world to be able to work on tools. And so it kind of confuses him. So this is where Imelda comes in. Imelda is having a tough time of it. She's working at a terrible job. And as I said, her ex-boyfriend, um, um, he's in prison now and he had gotten her into a bunch of like small um, level criminal stuff. So she kind of, she needs a, a proper job. And there's a moment where they kind of come together and he needs a driver. She needs a job. So she becomes his driver because he can't drive. And what he's looking for is he's looking for the the person who bit him, who infected him, is part of this organization, part of this group. Um, and in real simple terms, I would just say super soldiers, but it's not quite that. But basically, that's it. So what he's trying to find and what she then comes on board with is finding out the secret behind this. And if they can work out how he was infected, how he was changed, they're searching for some way to get him back. Because as much as it would seem like going from wolf to human is an evolution, Kane's been a human for a year. He's ready to become a wolf again. <laughs> he wants to go back to that world. That's a much better world for him. And so Kane and Imelda, the other character, they're, they're searching for this secret so he can return to his pack. And that's sort of the arc through the story and then the challenges that they present. In Kane, you show how people feel about themselves, influences their decisions. And Kane yeah. thinks he's invincible and Melda feels like she's a loser. What's your take yeah. on how we as human beings can shift our paths in life by shifting how we feel about ourselves? <laughs> that was right off the note card. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. And, and obviously, uh, unless you've uh, heard me speak before, that is that's a real fun part of this because Kane does see himself uh, almost arrogant. Right. He'll you know, I am I'm the beautiful. <laughs> I'm a wolf. But that's sort of how some animals present themselves, especially like you would see wolves and they look majestic and beautiful. And I had this thought in my head of of like, I wonder if they feel that way. Like, I am looking good today. Ladies, gentlemen, look at me. And so he has a bit of this bravado to him. But there is also within this, there's a bit of a backstory with Kane. Uh, one of the cool parts about a wolf pack is it, it's actually um, a male and female alpha. There isn't like the alpha male that runs the show or a female um, that runs the show. There's actually a partnership uh, within that. And, and there was a moment in his past where the original alpha male ended up getting killed. And so he slides up into that slot. And so as the book progresses, we learn a little bit about this. And so for all his bravado and for all of his, you know, I'm the man or the wolf, um, he never forgets that he's second best, that he was always, you know, the runner up. And that is something that ends up affecting him. So for all of this gusto and, you know, I can take anything on, there's that niggling little thing in the back of his head that says, like, you weren't quite good enough to be number one till number one died. And so that is something that affects him, that bit of insecurity. Um, and I think for all of, a, all of us humans, um, insecurity is a powerful force in our lives. Um, not always negative. I mean, you can actually use some of that insecurity to, 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 uh, to power you, to move you forward. Uh, and I've done a bit of that, hopefully, I think, in my life. Awesome. Um, I can just keep going. Go for it. You did the work. Let's let you have it. Um, how is narcolepsy your superpower? Yeah, so years ago, I've always been tired. And 
And it's, it's really difficult to explain narcolepsy because this is how I live all the time. Like even speaking to you right now, I have to focus and concentrate. And there will be moments where I will start to drift farther than that dream world. And I, and I start to forget I'm not even talking to people anymore. Um, somebody else, uh, although that might have been too simple, but somebody else once explained it to, to someone else who wasn't narcoleptic said, stay up for 36 hours straight, no sleep, now go to work. And so, and I, I guess that's what it must be like for people. I, all I know is I've always been tired. And so for years and years and years, I just knew myself as being tired. <laughs> My father used to joke when I used to take naps, he'd make jokes saying that uh, that was going through growth spurts. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even five foot eight. So that never kind of panned out. <clears throat> but so then uh, in my late twenties or so, uh, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, um, she, uh, she had, uh, she'd gone into to the doctor because uh, she always felt that she had something right. Um, and so she was speaking to this doctor cause she was convinced that she had narcolepsy. And I swear to you, this, this is the moment that happened. So I'm at the door kind of leaning against the door as she's talking with the doctor and he go he goes to the charter and thinks says, no, I don't think you'd have narcolepsy. I think he might. And I was like, what? And I don't know what it was, my demeanor or the way I spoke to him or something, but he felt I did, which was really unusual. So I went in, did the lie down thing. They put all the things on your head and you sleep in there overnight while people watch you, which is a queer experience. <laughs> I probably should have charged them for that. <laughs> but so uh, so they end up monitoring the brain, everything. They wake you up every every other hour and they give you a little quiz and all this sort of thing, which might have made the narcolepsy worse. Uh, but so once I had that definition, once I, I knew what that gremlin was, that's so empowering. I'm not just tired. I'm not just what might be depression or something that you have this thing that is going to make you tired all the time. OK, got that. I, I know that's a thing. How do I deal with it? And so so I tried all these, you know, a lot of caffeine and there was a time that I was taking Adderall and all this sort of thing. But more and more I started to realize that with my narcolepsy. Um, I'm basically, do you know when you like, you lie down to sleep at night and in those last couple of minutes before you fall asleep, all these creative ideas come to your head, right? All these cool ideas of, um, you know, a story or some music or something like that, or some idea you want to try and you sit, say to yourself, that is an amazing idea. I should write that down. No, no, no. I'll, I'll remember that in the morning. And then you don't remember it in the morning. <laughs> so that sort of dream sleep state that people have, they experience right before they fall asleep. I'm there about 80% of the day. Hmm. And so, so where is that can be exhausting? It's also being in a creative space for a huge chunk of the day. And that allows my brain sort of ungoverned to be able to go off in different directions and come up with these story ideas or character ideas all, all through my day. I have a notebook I keep with me all through the day. I have these things that come into me being that dream sleep state of, of lines or words or directions stories should take, or even just like, for example, in this third book, I just finished up the first draft this past week. I had no plan of this, but a character from another series appeared in at the, right near the end of this third book. And I won't say anything more about that, but I was surprised by that. And that just kind of came to me as I was driving and sort of probably a little bit too, <laughs> too faded away when I was driving, uh, riding the motorcycle, to be honest. Um, and, but no, so I see narcolepsy as that kind of superpower as a creative superpower because it allows to put me in sort of that dream wake state where that creativity just flows and flows and flows. It's a theta state from what I understand from neuroscience. 
Yeah, yeah. There you get your theta, alpha, beta, um, and yeah, it's it's being stuck in that with narcolepsy. Basically, they think it might be an autoimmune immune disorder where your body attacks the hypocritin. And so, like through the night, I haven't slept a, a, an entire eight hours in a night since I was a teenager because I'm up three, four times. Because basically, what happens is, I mean, I could sleep fifteen hours, wake up, and still be tired. Not that I could sleep fifteen hours, but so basically, with narcolepsy, you just it keeps kicking you out of that REM sleep. It keeps keep, kicking you out of of uh, the re- recuperative sleep. And so, yeah, so I end up being in that sort of mid zone when I'm, when I'm sleeping and then yeah, throughout the rest of the day. But like I said, once I knew what that was, rather than just being wholly frustrated by it, now that thing's got a name on it. And there's so much value in being able to at least you've got it, but now I can put a name on it and know who this character is in my brain. That has been really, I'll be honest, it's been empowering. It's been something that I've embraced and taken advantage of. And I've written 13 books (laughs) because of it. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier that you work out as a part of your yeah. regular life. So has the diagnosis of narcolepsy led you down a path of discovering where you're researching nutrients and food and diet and exercise things that also empower you to be biologically awake to whatever level? Yeah, it's a culmination of things. So uh, with an narcolepsy, they would, you know, you, you're supposed to avoid, you're actually supposed to avoid caffeine because you have that bit of a, a, a an up, but then you have a big crash. I don't quite avoid caffeine. Um, and then they say, you know, cut down on alcohol. And it took me a good number of years to do some of that because I live in New Zealand and these folks, they got, they got beer running through their veins. So it is a huge drinking culture in this country. Um, but uh, about two years ago, um, my my grandfather has passed, my grandmother has passed, and both um, through some mechanism of dementia. And now my my aunt, uh, the youngest of three, she got dementia about two years ago. And mm-hmm. it's been a real confronting downhill slide to see her on that path. <clears throat> and so I think it was... It was a progression over the years for me, right? So I got the narcolepsy. I tried to clean up my act. I, I cut out a lot of the fast foods and that sort of thing. But as I'm saying, about two years ago, when I saw my aunt, I went to a Christmas party. And she still had some of her, facility, her facilities left. And she recognized me. But she took me around to my own family and began introducing me to the other family members. But couldn't remember my name and couldn't remember their name. And I just, the struggle that she was having was really, it affected me. It really affected me. So it was about a month after that, I got onto a regular exercise routine. So I hit the gym four or five days a week. I cut out alcohol. That's done. There's no sugar in my diet. And and all of those, none of those are going to prevent dementia or none of those are going to necessarily cure narcolepsy. But all of those things kind of getting a more healthy approach to my life, um, it's going to benefit me in the end. And if I can live to on my mother's side, they, they live, they're old, man. They're, they, they don't, <laughs> I think death is afraid of them or something. He doesn't mm. want to take them in. And so if I do live into my, you know, mid eighties, nineties or something, I want to be healthy enough to be able to enjoy those last years. And so, yeah, so I've really embraced that. And I, and I think it's helping with the narcolepsy. If nothing else, I'm convinced it is making a difference. And sometimes just a placebo effect alone of thinking that that is helping this, that's enough. 
They've yeah. actually shown in studies, because I've been doing news forever, they've shown, shown in studies that uh, the eff- efficacy of drugs, 60% of that, it might even be a little bit more than that, is down to us believing that it works. Yeah. And so if I believe that all this stuff is starting to work and, and helping with my narcolepsy, it does, just because I believe it does. <laughs> well, do yeah, we create our reality. Yeah. And that's 100% true. Do either of your parents show signs of dementia? Uh... It's tough because my father is weird. Um, (laughs) He was just demented from day one. (laughs) He is just a weird dude. And so, and I'll be honest, there's a, my daughter has, um, uh, she, there was a time when she was younger that we we were sort of testing her for uh, Asperger's because she wasn't picking up on signals from other people, emotional signals. And when I know that when I talk to other folks that I have a difficult time looking at their eyes, I have to fo- force myself to look at their eyes. And I'm actually socially, I can talk on camera all day with people, but one-on-one, after about 10 minutes or so, I, uh, I got to go. <laughs> I, just, I don't do great in social settings. So, so where he's weird, I guess I'm, I'm the middle part of weird. My daughter's more normal. So I don't know how much that plays into some of the dementia, but there's something mentally going on there that's a bit quirky. And you could argue just by reading some of my stories, you probably go like, yeah, this boy ain't right. There's, <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's something not right with this, this child right here. So, but again, you know, I, I take some of that weirdness and I put it into stories that people seem to enjoy. And so for the moment, I know that there's something going around in my noggin, but I'm enjoying the ride at, um, as it stands at the moment. All right. How did you come to live in New Zealand? I've always heard that New Zealand is a tough nut to crack for immigration. I was wondering the ah. same thing. What compelled you to go from the top of the earth to the bottom? as the way we <laughs> northerners look at it. Well, so I was at the time I was working at uh, CNN as a producer, excuse me. And um, and that's that's a really awful world. And I don't mean CNN in particular, but the television world is a terrible place. There are awful human beings there. And so I'd said to my wife, I said, I'm ready to get out of this or at least get out of this environment. And so we had thought we'd all, the planet had always sort of been, let's go to Colorado, then let's go to New Zealand after that, because I'm half Kiwi. My father, the weird one, um, he's a New Zealander, and half my family is, is Kiwi. And so I have what's called citizenship by descent. And so they have to let me in, you know, <laughs> for as much as they were like, is there any way, is there any, is there any, is there a loophole here? No, no. I, they, they had to let me in the door. And so I filled out the paperwork and I'm here. Uh, but so we were going to go to Colorado and then like retire in New Zealand. And my wife was like, why don't we just cut out the middleman and just go straight to New Zealand? And so we were living in Atlanta at the time, and we sold all of our stuff. We put our remaining stuff onto a pallet and got onto a plane and brought it all here about 11 years ago. And, and we've been here ever since. That's why I've heard it's beautiful there and that, that there's a kind of <clears throat> per capita standard of living that's hard to beat in the, in the whole world. It's insanely expensive. It's insanely expensive. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a gorgeous place. We live in Auckland and like anything, you know, any big city, whatever. There are times you go, you know, I don't know if I like this place. And then when we get out of Auckland, we just we start to remember, oh, that's right. There's all this other stuff out here. Um, but it's just everywhere you turn, it's picture postcard. Um, there's, you, you know, beautiful lakes, mountains. There's skiing. There are beaches. Um, the people are lovely. The There's nothing here that will kill you. Um it's it's pretty amazing. When you go to Australia, in Australia, everything's going to kill you. Not just the people. 
<laughs> I mean, they've got bugs that'll kill you, spiders that'll kill you, sp- uh, they got snakes that'll kill you, they got probably plants that will kill you. Here, there's none of that. You could you could walk through the forest. I mean, I can, you know, like outside, you know, there's every now and then you see spiders and all that stuff because I don't like spiders. But I don't have to worry about any of that stuff being poisonous. There's nothing here for the most part. There's nothing here that'll kill you. So it's, <clears throat> there, was, there was a moment where I guess New Zealand broke off from Godwan or whatever it was when all the scary, freaky mammals started getting larger and evolving, getting big teeth and poison. And this became basically a, an island nation of birds. So we've got a huge, a beautiful array of birds out here. But for the most part, yeah, nothing. It's, it's a real safe place. But as I mentioned, yeah, the, <laughs> it's expensive, though. Ooh, I um, when I had kids at home, so five people at home, I pay more now or we pay more now to feed my wife and I than I did back when it was five kids at home or a family of five at home. Uh, it's very expensive. The home we're living in here in uh, just uh, west of Auckland, you probably buy it in. I'll just go with Atlanta. You probably buy it in Atlanta for two hundred sixty five thousand, two hundred eighty thousand. Here it's probably a million. Wow. So, yeah, it's an expensive country to live in, but it's uh, it's a ticket we're willing to pay for sure because it's, you, it's an amazing, amazing place. Have you and your wife gotten involved at all with the um, element of the indigenous people of New Zealand and um, the white culture that Invaded, for lack of a better word, in this moment, colonized. Yeah, colonized. Yeah, thank you. Have you, have you, either of you, or both of you, sort of dug into that at all? Uh, well, I yeah, I'm thinking of was So um, I'm Naitahu, part part Naitahu. So I have Māori heritage. I have what's called the Madai um, down near the Invercargill area on the South Island. So I've got indigenous culture within me. Um, I, I could trace my heritage back to that. For as pale as I am, um, I am part Māori. And so um, the Pakia, as they call them here, uh, that's the white folks, um, there's actually, a, there's a pretty good, there's a there's a pretty good partnership through here. Um, it's, <clears throat> New Zealand's one of the few countries that early on the Treaty of Waitangi, they, they ended up kind of coming to terms with this rather than coming in and as we did in the U.S. to a great extent with the Native Americans. And as and again, I'm generalizing, of course, but and like in Australia with the Aborigines there, where it was like, you know, the colonists came in and went, yeah, this is this is ours. We put our flag in and and this is ours now and we're going to make you go away. It was there was definitely problems here. No question. But there's a there's far more Maori culture here than let's say native american in the u.s um or uh or aboriginal in australia uh you have the paki people the white people here they use a lot of the maori words like fano is family kiota means hello um any newscast you see will start with kiota good evening uh whatever it might be um so a lot of the white people paki people here sort of embrace um, a good number of that. Uh, we live, the street we live on is Udamaraki, which means southern wind, which to be honest, sounds like fart. But uh, <laughs> we live we live on Udamaraki Avenue. So there, the Māori culture is woven through a lot of this culture, uh, a lot of this country, um, all through the society. And there are always going to be challenges with that. But this is probably, of, of all the places I've lived, this is probably 
I've seen where they've embraced the indigenous culture more than anywhere else. And I, I think sometimes they forget that here a bit. They don't realize because they certainly have their challenges here, like anywhere. And you're going to have your outliers that are horrible on, on all sides. But they've done a pretty amazing job with sort of integrating both of these, you know, and and, you notice- and, and they should be proud of it. Do you notice with the economic intensity that you described earlier, what's the homeless problem like there in New Zealand and Auckland? Do you guys have similar levels of tent cities like we do here in California, or is it much better handled there? No, not tent cities. And and again, I hate speaking generalizations, but in the comparison, like when I came here, they're talking about their homeless problem, like in Auckland, and they're talking about their terrible homeless problem. And then they told me some of the numbers at the time. And I was like, so the, that number, that 126 you just said, is that for the entire city? It's like, yeah. <laughs> at the time, it was like they'd counted like 126 homeless people. It's like, really? That's, the, that's your number? Now, you see some folks on Queen Street, sort of the main street downtown. But if you, if you live down there, we lived down there for about a year or so, you get to know them. Um, you, you know these guys. But it's not like we have in the U.S. Um, like if you go through New York, you have people stepping over folks, you know, in the um, in the subways or whatever it might be. We don't quite have it like that. It's not perfect, of course. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not perfect, of course. But the, there is there is a significant amount of because the taxes are so high here. Um, there's a significant amount of uh, social infrastructure to help folks out. And uh, they build state houses all the time to help people. Um, um, just one example, um, like like if you're going through a difficult time with your job, whatever it might be, uh, you know, when I lived in Atlanta, um, there was a time when I was going through my divorce that I went bankrupt. And the, the bank was more than happy to come in and swoop in and take my house. They were overjoyed to take my house. Here, not at all. They're just like, we don't want your house. <laughs> and, and I mention that because it's sort of a bit of a, and maybe because it's, it's an island of 5 million people, there's a bit of an attitude of like, let's all just work all this stuff out together rather than I'm going to take mine and I don't care what you got. You know, so I mentioned the mortgage thing a bit is they got mortgage holidays and really the banks have no interest in taking your home at all. And so so that as a bit of a, um, an allegory to the rest of the society, there's that sort of feeling um, where people do they do care about each other and they do try to help each other's out. Um, we work all the time on the television show I work and we work all the time with charities and women's refuge. Um, and and it's, it's strange. There's parts of the society here that aren't funded fully by the government. So like you have the ambulance um, service here or the helicopter service that works with the ambulance. And part of that is a large chunk of that is charity. Mm. The government doesn't fund all that. And so it's the people of New Zealand that have to put their own money in. And basically I'm putting money in that might help me, but it's going to help somebody else out. And, And most of the folks around here aren't rolling in dough, but they do put money into the system to make sure that everybody else is taken care of. So, yeah, there's definitely when it comes to the homeless problem, there is a problem. And, and they take it very seriously and they feel awful about it, but it's nowhere on the level that we've got, because I think there is. And it, again, it might come down to that idea that it's just us five million on this tiny island in the middle of nowhere. But there is this feeling that we've got to take care of each other. Well, core element you just mentioned <clears throat> that I see very different here in the United States is that element of just health care that you said it's charity here. It's privately owned with. Yeah. 
stockholders that want their cut. So right. there's no and, and there's going to and there's going to be all the positive negatives with it. You know, like I can go to the emergency room here, a hospital here, and that is government funded. Um, there are wait times when it comes to that. And of late, there have been some real problems with some really long wait times. There's some infrastructure problems have come up to the UK has suffered some of that of late. That's probably some method of economics as well that play into that. When it comes to the advancements, um, you know, for as awful as a system that we do have in the US, uh, there are advancements, I guess, because a lot of it's commercially driven. There are advancements there. So when somebody, I know somebody who's very close to the show who got very sick and basically was, was told you're dying, this is over. He ended up flying to Boston for this experimental treatment that has shown some signs with some treatment and it was expensive, and he did a fundraiser, which people contributed to. But with that technology that was developed through that system in Boston, he's now living, and he's cancer-free. Hmm. So it's not – neither system was working perfectly. But maybe That's if we could find point. a way to bridge these two gaps together, we'd find something better. Yeah. When our whole plan is looked at as the way you mentioned New Zealand, that we're all on this rock together. Let's – yeah. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, I lived in um, I lived in the U.S. South uh, for a period of time when I did radio. And there was a similar feeling for that for me as well. I remember going to El Dorado Springs, Missouri. Uh, I mean, two and a half hours south of Kansas City and and nobody had anything. My rent was one hundred eighty dollars a month um, for a house. But but the people there all had that sort of like really, really low income and they all helped each other out. You know, um, we didn't have a washer or dryer, but there was uh, it was a junkyard down the road and somebody knew a guy that knew another guy and they had a washer and dryer set up and they brought it to our house. And another guy knew another guy who knew what a little bit about this sort of stuff and could fix it up. And for five bucks, they fixed it up. And since it come from the junkyard, it was free. So basically total strangers helped us get a washer and dryer because we had a baby at home and two older uh, br- two older brothers she had two older brothers and they just helped out and so i think there's something there's something to the community of being broke <laughs> yeah. or, or something i don't know what it is where everybody starts to realize that you know what we got to help each other out and when i need something i know that something's going to be there for me beautiful hmm I want to know when you're going to return to your true calling as a comic. <laughs> I have, you know, I've had a number of folks here ask me about that. Um, um, people that I work with that they want to see me get a bit, because I did stand up in Minneapolis. I did it uh, the last time, last bigger time to did it. Um, I did it with a buddy of mine, Dan Whitney out of um, Orlando. I don't know where he's living now, uh, but he's better known as Larry the Cable Guy. Um, oh, yeah. And I ended, I ended up middling or featuring for, for Larry in Melbourne, Florida. And I had a blast doing it. And on occasion, I'll go to events and stuff like that, and I'll go do some stand-up. But stand-up for me was a cheat. Um, I never had a huge desire to be in, uh, in front of the microphone. I never had a huge desire to be in the spotlight at all. That's why, my, you know, my chosen sort of profession is to be an author in my little room <laughs> with all the shades closed. Um, but I got into stand-up comedy because <clears throat> I was writing at the time, 
And, you know, it's difficult to get published. And I realized that I could write something in the afternoon, then go on stage, and I'm instantly published. So that was an extension. The stand-up comedy was an extension of the writing. I could write something, get on stage, and people could feed that love back to me. And so my desire to get on stage and do stand-up comedy was really more about my desire to create and write and entertain people and make their lives just a tiny bit better for a short moment of time. Um, so I don't have a huge desire to get back on stage. I might try. I might try just once in this country to see. But there's a very sort of different sort of style um, with Kiwi humor. Like when I was growing up, as I mentioned, I was growing up with a New Zealand father, Kiwi dad. And so trying to get him to laugh was was my version of getting love back from him. Right. Getting approval because key, older Kiwi dads. There's not a whole lot of like, you're doing amazing, you're doing great. There's none of that, to be honest. <laughs> so the only way I got approval was him breaking, you know, because I knew he didn't want to. But if I could make him laugh, that was a bit of love coming back to me. And I guess that's, to some extent, where some of the humor kind of generated from. Um, so I know how difficult it is to get uh, Kiwis, New Zealanders, to really gut bust in concert. Uh, there's a friend of mine named Nick Rado, and he says, like, you know when a, a crowd in New Zealand is really enjoying your set, because he does stand-up all the time. He said, if they're not enjoying it, they're like this. And if they are enjoying it, they're like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? For those of you listening, he crossed his arms and turned his head for the first one, and then he let his shoulders drop for the second one. It's very subtle. <laughs> yeah, difference. and I'm So that's it. It's so 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 be able to get a big old belly laugh out of them is a bit challenging. So uh, but I'd like to try just the one time. If nothing else, I'm a glutton for punishment. Is um, the the knowledge of dream time, is that indigenous to New Zealand or is that Australia? Yeah, that doesn't sound familiar here okay. um there is there is certainly a spirituality in this country about um about honoring the land about uh, you know about respecting one another you know many years ago the Māori cultures there was um there were warring cultures you know they were fighting over land and resources that sort of thing but there is there's far more this is a pretty this is a pretty uh you know, a lot of people describe America as a Christian nation, and I wouldn't describe New Zealand as that at all. I would say this place is riddled with atheists. <laughs> there's there's Catholics for sure, um, um, and actually a, a good number of the Māori population is Catholic, um, like my my aunts uh, and, and a lot of my family. But so I'd say almost the chief spirituality in this country is sort of that, that Māori-ness of this country and sort of... Um, protecting the the waters or protecting the forests um there are <clears throat> they, there are moments where uh, like if something happens like if somebody dies on the beach or something it's not even the local authority that will close the beach down it will be um like an iwi leader like a tribe leader that will come out and sort of say this 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 area is sort of sacred nobody comes here and for the most part people respect that so so yes yeah, so that spirituality in this country a lot of it is driven by Māori. um do you have, like here in the South, the practice of voodoo is sort of a combination of Christianity and um, African practices? Haitian, yeah. Yeah. Do you have some? Yeah, no, 
Yeah, they, they, they haven't meld those two, you know. Um, I actually wrote about some of that, and that played a role in my original series with Hal Link, and so I was able to study a bit of that. Yeah, no, they keep it pretty separated. There's a real chill vibe here when it comes to everything. I mean, I remember the first time I came through the airport in this country, just giving an idea of the vibe. <clears throat> and I'd come in with my 13 bags and went to the end and got to where um, where we were going to um, at the next part of the airport. And, and at one point I realized, oh, shoot, I got one, two, three, four, 12. I'd left a bag behind. And so I ended up walking through back through the airport. And I was so tired at the time, I didn't see all the signs that do not enter. It's a violation <laughs> of international law. I just got <laughs> just walking along as I go. And then this this big dude came up to me and said, hey, where are you going? I said, oh, I think I might have left the bag back there. He goes, oh, I'll go with you. I was like, oh, you guys are taking me back. That's pretty cool. We go. I found the bag and brought it through. And as we start walking through, I sort of came back up again. I realized I wasn't supposed to do that, was I? He goes, <laughs> No, but it's okay. If I would have done that in the airport in San Francisco, <laughs> some dude would have stepped on my neck and I would have had an M16 to the to my face. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was so yeah. tense. And, and I understand some of the reasons behind it. But that sort of chill, because the dude was a Monty guy as well, but that sort of chill style, that sort of like, you know, looking at the moment and evaluating the moment for what it is, not because of the rigid rules in place has been a, has been an, something I had to get used to because I'm a real rule follower when it comes to stuff. I try to stay in the box, but more and more, it's just me understanding that here it's like, let's just see what works for everybody as much as possible. That's awesome. So in your relationship to being in theta, a lot of the time, and yeah. this character in Hell Inc., who is essentially a ghost investigator, there's <laughs> right. this aspect of being in between. And yeah. in the the move in the series The Stranger Things from Netflix, there's this thing called the upside down or the in between. What right. what's your relationship to that idea? And and how do you think that inhabits our world? How do, how do you think that functions in terms of humanity? Yeah, so you're talking about the the original series, like I mentioned earlier, um, and it's funny because the arc of that series, talk about uh, no plans. <clears throat> uh, in the fourth book, I kill the main character. <laughs> uh, that, again, wasn't the plan. It just sort of happened. And so what happens is is he basically comes into himself in the fourth book, and he he doesn't know how he got here. He doesn't know his past. He's a ghost. But he realizes that he's wandering around the world as his ghost. And like I said, has no idea of his past whatsoever. So so he's got to make it through this world. And there's some rules that are established. Uh, there's only certain people that actually can hear um, ghosts speak. And that's people that are close to death. And so he's able to um, get some assistance with what he's trying to do. And I won't give all that away. Um, he actually goes knowing that the only people that can hear ghosts, the only people that can hear those that are stuck in this in-between uh, version of the afterlife. Um, the only way uh, he can get some help is if he finds people that are close to death. So he hangs out at retirement homes <laughs> and he looks for recruits. <laughs> and so he has old people that are helping him out on his quest. And I guess some of that interest came to me was there's always a sort of feeling that I don't know. It's probably naive that this can't be it, that there's got to be something more, you know, that after this, that I just maybe I'm being stupid, but 
I don't feel that we just turn off and the world ends, that there's something more to it. But, and there might be a bunch of different versions of whatever that might be. So there's a reason why, why certain people who die end up in the in-between, and you find that out in the story. But that fascinated me, and there are definitely moments, and everybody's felt it, where you're sitting in a room and you know you're not alone, or, you, or, or even worse, if we've got three cats at home. So if you're sitting in a quiet room in the dark with a cat and nothing will give you the, the, the heebie-jeebies when the cat goes and just stares off into a corner wide-eyed. It's like, what are you looking at? There's yeah. nothing in this corner. And so in the story, cats do have a sense of the dead. And, so, and that came from having three cats at home. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of this maybe my interpretation of the world around me, thinking that there's more to life, or it might be just putting my desires on it, thinking that there's more after this life. So, yeah, that's a fun space to work in. Uh, that is a really fun space to work in. God. Um, I have one more question for my list of questions. Right. On a scale of one to ten, how badly do you want to have a drink with Peter Drink Dinklage? I love Peter Dinklage. Uh, I he's the greatest. Um, I don't, and it is funny. In now, <laughs> I should say that you're implying, of course, that the actor, the very actor of very short stature in the Helling series, is Peter Dinklage. But we never name him in the story. He's only known as the actor. He might be Peter Dinklage. He really could be. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, something being given given away. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it uh, you know any sort of copyright infringement or any of that sort of thing, none of that happens because I've never mentioned his name in the particular story. But I think the guy's brilliant. I mean, if you've seen him, obviously we know him from the Game of Thrones stuff, but like an elf or something like that. But like the station agent, anything he is in for somebody of a sort of diminutive stature, he's the biggest thing in the room. Every time he walks in, he just has his power about him. He's yeah. an amazing actor, and man, he's got something right. He's got something special about him. He's he's one of those one hundred ones or something that I've heard somebody call it. He, he everybody has got one hundred percent. He's got one hundred and one. There's something special about him. I don't know where it comes from, but that dude is one of the coolest people on the planet. Well, speaking of that realm, um, what little I've learned of the stories, they seem to scream for the visual medium, whether it's right. like Stranger Things, a series on. TV or film. Have you been approached by a producer for rights? So, uh, so you have these things, you guys are from California, you know about options. So I've had my work optioned in the past and then you got to wait the three months and then, you know, see what happens after that. <clears throat> Within two weeks of publishing Kane, which I did on August 11th, just uh, what, four months ago now. Uh, within two weeks of publishing Kane, I had the folks from Podium Audio approach me. And Podium is one of the biggest audiobook producers in the world. They're the ones who, when a book by Andy Weir uh, started to get some interest, uh, some people's interest in it, called The Martian, they went, oh, let's turn that into an, one of their very first. Let's turn that into an audiobook. And once they turned The Martian into an audiobook, once though that, that written text was given to actors or an actor to act out the scenes and put emotion behind it and, and, and craft out this, this audio storyline, this theater of the mind, I think that helped a lot of people see that as a production. And so the audiobooks for Kane should be coming out here within, 
if not about now, they should be coming out here very, very shortly. Uh, the first three will be on audiobooks from Podium Audio. And then I think it's that moment because there's going to be two actors, which I'm excited about. That doesn't happen a whole mm. lot of times. Wow. So they're going to have um, a woman's going to read all Imelda's oh, parts, but on those cool. first those first person parts are all going to be done by this this other um, uh, narrator, and he's phenomenal. And so that's going to be really fun. And I think once once folks start to see not just on the page, but hear it in this theater of the mind, I think that's that's when things are really going to start to happen. That's how it happened for Andy Weir. And so I expect that there's a really good chance that that's a similar path with Kane. Cause I've had, I've had so many people say the same as you, I would love to see this on the screen in some way. Uh, yeah. And I think that it's the sort of thing that people get into. Um, it's, it's, for as much as I can keep saying this, it's not a monster book. There happen to be monsters in it, but it's not. I never set out to write a monster book. Yeah, This is basically about the struggle that everybody has, you know, two people that are trying to work out what the heck's going on and coming together. They seem to start, start to work that out. Um, oh, I just forgot this. Series, but you are like when at the beginning of our interaction here, I was keep thinking of Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, yeah, right. Robert Heinlein. Right, right. But then there was this series that was a fantasy about a, um, a gentleman who has leprosy, and he goes into the Southern realm, and he was thought of as the – he was named the unclean. Right. Um, oh, anyway, there's, rel- there's elements that I hear resonating with what you're speaking of in your stories, where it really is – Almost an answer. My wife, my wife has brought this a couple of times. In all my writing, the heroes of my stories are people really often that are marginalized. Right. You take a look at, at, at Raz or the actor in the Hell Inc. series or um, even Imelda. She's a, she's a part-time criminal and she's at the lowest economic room possible. Or Kane, who's a misfit in this world. They're all people that are marginalized. They're all people that are basically pushed aside. And but when given just the right spark and that spark often comes from others of the same ilk that come together when they sort of band together and they lift up and become more than themselves. And I think for me, that is I love writing stories like that. I I love pulling instead of the superhero, the Iron Man, the Wonder Woman, whatever it might be. I like grabbing the person that people don't think about. I love grabbing that 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 person in my head that is marginalized or somebody that would seem lesser to some other people. And then finding the hero within that person. And that story to me is very appealing. Do you feel you had a resonance of that in your life? Like with, because obviously narcolepsy didn't just happen. You were, grew up with it. I think we all want to feel that way, right? We all want to feel as though we've got a bit of hero in us. We all want to feel as though if we see some kid get snatched in a car drive off, that we're going to, we're the ones who jump on the hood and do that, <laughs> you know? So I think maybe there is a bit of role play for readers when they read this sort of thing. Uh, but do you it, think you were, you, do you think you were marginalized as you? I was, uh, I don't get into all of it, but as a kid, I was a chubby Canadian living in, in New Jersey. <laughs> With, oh. You know, that, that, <laughs> I spent a lot of time alone in those first early years. So, yeah, I, you're right. There might have been some elements of that. I was somebody who sat alone at a lunch table for a great length of my early years in the United States. And so maybe some of that, those fantasies back then of like, if they could only see who I am, maybe that is something that has come into my writing. I think you're right. Uh, well, we have uh, come to a point where we need to, we have a hard end time, which I'm sorry about because Dick, we could, I think both Mark and I could spend a lot more oh, yeah. time. All right. 
Um, Mark, would you? So like we have one more question we want to ask. All right. All right. Eminem or Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters. Ooh, that was quick. I've actually interviewed David Grohl a couple of times. I only, I only say that to impress you. <laughs> I've inter- I have interviewed him a couple of times. He's one of the coolest dudes in the world. I just love the guy. Yeah, he is. Well, I got to say, Dick, it was really cool to meet you. You're cool. Yeah. I love your the premises of your book and the rich field of Thank your you. imagination. I feel a lot of gratitude Thank for having spent the time with you. Me too. You guys have been fantastic. I've really enjoyed the morning. Thank you so much. Recording stopped.